0: Greetings listeners, if any, and welcome to DM Dad, the podcast about running D&D and other RPGs for kids. A great way to spend time with your family, now that your friends are too old and have all moved away. So, one thing that's been uh, making the rounds... um, with the uh, anchorites uh as tim shorts uh pointed out in uh his most recent podcast is the uh, appendix n um the basically the uh the inspiration for your your gaming and especially your gaming world or uh things like that you know uh, follow me and I did a an episode on that as well which i actually phoned into and uh yeah I thought I would just do a whole episode on uh on my appendix n i mean i uh i read a lot i um, I've always been a really avid reader uh, ever since I was a kid um Probably one of the reasons why I want to be a writer as well uh so I could go on and on and on about things that i have uh that have influenced me in some ways but there's there's two things in particular which have influenced my, uh, my game world, my homebrew game world, and uh, those things are uh, the poem, the Anglo-Saxon poem Beowulf, and the uh, 80s film Dragon Slayer. So uh, we'll start with Beowulf. Um, I can still remember the first time I read Beowulf in translation, obviously, because you have to learn Old English if you want to read it in the original um, I was still in elementary school in California and it was a uh, a substitute teacher day and uh I don't know, and I probably never will know whether this was something the regular teacher had told her i, th- I- to, to run i I feel like this was one of those random days where the the regular teacher got sick and uh, had to call into work and they needed to get uh, a sub in quickly. So my impression has always been like this was this was something where the the sub got called in at short notice. And they just you know bring something they're they're this this grade, this age, bring something appropriate, fill in the time probably a twenty four hour virus, the regular teacher will be in the next day um so she brought in Beowulf um, she had um, she had photocopied the poem, so we all got a little stapled um kind of handout that had the text of the poem. It's only three thousand lines It's not that long um, It had a little bit of introduction it had a little bit of quotes from the uh, the original Anglo-Saxon, and a brief description of of you know how Old English used to work and how different it used to be. Up until then, if somebody said, "What's Old English?" I would have probably said, "Oh, like Shakespeare." It's like, no, no, no. It's a completely different language. Um, and I, my first thoughts were, "Beowulf. What kind of a name is that? Stupid. What does that even mean?" Um, By the way, it actually means literally wolf of the bees, but that's a kenning for bear. So it means bear. Um, And it's like, I've never heard of this. What's this about? Then my second thought was, it's in a column like a poem, but it doesn't rhyme. And it's telling a story. What's up with that? Because I thought poems should rhyme. And I thought poems were like song lyrics. They should be about feelings or flowers or something like that it's funny because a lot of nursery rhymes are ballads but i remember being being really put off initially that somebody would bother to tell a story in a poem it's like no a story should be in prose but as i started reading it all that went out the window and i was just amazed um and then i remember thinking how come i've never heard of beowulf before i've heard of king arthur and lancelot i've heard of robin hood I've even heard of Achilles and Odysseus, you know, how come I've never heard of this guy? This guy ripped a monster's arm off with his bare hands. Then he went underwater and killed the monster's mother. And then he fought a dragon. You know, how come, how come we haven't all been talking about, how come this isn't one of those mythical figures that everybody knows about, even if they haven't actually read the original story, you know? Um so that was my first encounter with Beowulf um later on, I met Beowulf again because uh I wanted to do i wanted when i was a an undergraduate at the University of denver uh my initial attention intention was to study twentieth century literature because it was still the twentieth century and I wanted to be a twentieth century author. I probably should have just studied creative writing but uh I didn't because I'm weird, so I thought instead of studying how to write, I'll study books and I'll learn how to write well from books. Um, and uh, they're like, "Well, you have to do a foreign language as well. You can't just uh, you can't just do uh, do English literature." So I picked German because I had done German uh, in school. And as I was doing German in college, I was like, you know, something that's always, you know, struck me is that how many words in German are similar to words in English, words like hand, which means hand and Fuss, which means foot, you know, and Fussball, which means football and things like that. You know, there there are loads of words that are different, but there are loads of words that are similar. And it's like, what what's up with that? And my prof's like, oh, well, English and German are related. They're like sister languages or or maybe like cousins, you know, but they have a common ancestor. And I was like, really? Wow. It's like, oh, so how far back do you have to go before they're similar? And she didn't know specifically because she wasn't like a medievalist. But she's like, probably, you know, like old English is probably quite similar to old high German and stuff. So, you know, you couldn't study old high German at my university, but you could study old English. So I started doing that and I, I kind of ended up going more into medieval literature because of that than 20th century and I kind of left the 20th, 20th century behind gradually. But that's where I learned to actually read old English and to read Beowulf in the original. and uh, And, you know, I came to know the poem a lot better and... When it came time to start building my fantasy world, that's when you know that's what informed a lot of my sensibilities about what I what how I wanted my fantasy world to look like. So, what does a Beowulf-esque fantasy world look like? Well, it's low magic and low fantasy. Beowulf, he obviously has some kind of superhuman strength because he's able to rip Grendel's arm off with one or with his with his bare hands. We don't know exactly how big Grendel is. He's not very clearly described. Nobody even really knows what he looks like. But he's clearly bigger than a normal human. Uh, For instance, he picks Beowulf up in one hand, and then Beowulf grabs that arm and then rips it off. So Beowulf is clearly, he's got some exceptional or extraordinary strength, but he's not magic. He doesn't have any magical powers. And the people he interacts with are all humans, and nobody nobody at Hrothgar's Hall of Herod has any magical powers, so it's a low fantasy world where the visible world is human, and as long as you're in that visible world, you're probably only going to encounter other humans. It may not be a pretty world, it may not be a safe world it's the it's effectively the world of the Vikings. You know, the world of the warring Germanic tribes in the Age of Migration. So, you know, marauders can come to sack your town at any given moment, but they would be human marauders, and they would have human weapons, and you would deal with them the way you deal with other humans. But that doesn't mean that there's no such thing as monsters. They're out there beyond civilization, where the light of civilization doesn't reach, And we see this in the poem. Hrothgar is a great king of the Danes. We get his lineage um, as the poem begins. And then Hrothgar wants to build a mead hall, a big wooden hall where he can sit and get drunk with his warriors and divide his treasure. Because that's what a king does. Every time a king wins a battle, he takes treasure from the, the losers. But he doesn't keep that treasure. He doles it out lavishly to the warriors who helped him achieve victory. And he gets them drunk every single night. That's how it works. That's how Anglo-Saxon society and how ancient Germanic society works. So he needed a place to build this meat hall. Because what's a king without a great meat hall? So he went out into the moors, into uh, what he thought was an uninhabited bit of wilderness. It turns out it was inhabited by Grendel and his mother and the poem describes grendel as the spawn of cain so it gives a it, it's the the poem as we have it was written by a christian monk so there is some christianization of the poem that probably is not part of the original poem but it's the version we have whether whether you have the christianized version of grendel or not he's a monster he's a he's against humankind and every night Hrothgar holds a big party for his warriors, and they drink and make merry, and it's very noisy and loud. And there's presumably light from the the fires that they have in the hall, pouring out, illuminating what w- would once have been completely dark and barren moor. And in particular, what some of the songs they sing. In the Christianized version of the poem that we have, they sing songs about the creation of the world, the biblical story of creation, and that apparently particularly offends him. So what's what's happened is Hrothgar has moved into monster territory. He's moved away from a civilized part of the country into a wilderness area, and now he is in the reach of monsters, and monsters then come and visit his hall and they wait for all the warriors to pass out drunk and then he scoops them up and eats them we see another aspect of how how we see another aspect of how uh, the wilderness is dangerous and full of monsters when beowulf talks about the swimming contest that he was in he and another uh, hero challenged each other to a swimming contest in the open sea And Beowulf was attacked by sea monsters. I mean, perhaps these sea monsters are really something that exists in real life, like an orca or something like that. Um, Certainly, you can imagine that uh, a thousand years ago or more, when people didn't know a lot about marine biology, that they did think that actual creatures like orcas and whales and stuff were sea monsters, but the poem doesn't describe these sea monsters as if they're natural animals. They're monsters. And this is another example of Beowulf has left the safety of civilization and swum out into nature into the wilderness and encountered monsters there. And he, has, he, he gets dragged to the bottom of the sea and he has to fight the monsters with just his sword. So that is how... Uh, Magic and monsters work in my setting. Um, As long as you're in town or, you know, in a village or something like that, it's human. Nobody has magic. There's no wizard tower or nobody openly practicing magic. You can't buy magical items, you know. Um, If you want that stuff, you have to go adventuring for it. And once you leave town and go into the wilderness – Then all bets are off, and there's no telling what you're going to find. But while you're in town, you're going to meet other humans. You're not going to walk into the tavern and find a tiefling waitress and a gnome proprietor. The blacksmith isn't a dwarf. If you want to meet dwarves, you have to go into the mountains and find their hidden kingdoms. If you want to meet elves, you have to go into the woods and find their hidden kingdoms, you know. The, all the stuff all the stuff that you would want in your fantasy game exists, but it's not in town. You have to work for it um and and the reason I run my my world that way is uh because I'm trying to capture that that sense of the the sense of the world that you get in Beowulf so people in in Beowulf's time or when the poem was you know first composed. People in the time of the Vikings, or when you get the uh, the Eddas, the poetic and the prose Eddas, they never met elves or dwarves because they don't really exist. But they believed in them. They thought they were out there. They never they never met a dragon because there aren't any dragons. But they believed in them. You know, they never met anybody who could do magic, but they believed that it was possible. It's just not at their house, not in their town or their village, not in their home settlement. It's out there in the dangerous wilderness, and that's where it is in my my setting as well. You know, um I, the one thing I really liked about Fourth Edition D and D Fourth Edition was what they called their Points of Light setting, where you had a lot of little safe places, and in between them was dangerous wilderness. And I, I really like running that. Running something like that. In fact, I the Nintir Valley setting is kind of the thing from fourth edition that I that I kind of preserve. Um there's there is a section of my my setting which is basically the Nintir Vale. Anyways, um one thing I thought I would do before I stop talking about Beowulf is just I'm going to attempt to read a bit of it in the original Anglo-Saxon, just uh, the opening lines, which um, even to this day, um, I, I just, I really love them. I really love reading them. They always kind of give me a thrill. Hwat we gardena in dagum, failed cunninger through who the Etheling is, Ellen Oft syl scheffing o threatam, monigam maitham, mead o settla oft herch. Egsod o erla, erst werth fea he hedas fro freyabad. Weax under wulknum, werth thach, or that him ac welch, thara um setundra, over a huren shoulder, Gomben gulden, that was god cunning." And what that means? So the first word of the poem is "what," which literally means "what," but it's it's a rhetorical call for uh, attention. It's been translated a, a lot of ways. Uh, one of the most famous translations um, has "so," or sometimes people translate it "listen." It literally means "what." It's like you know when somebody gets your attention, they say "what what" or something like that. But you know, listen. We have heard of the Spear Danes, who in uh, days of yore were kings of men. We've heard how those princes did deeds of great valor. Oft shield Sheffing, the uh, the threat of the threat of scathe. a threat, means somebody who threatens you with lots of injuries. So he's a powerful warrior. He. Uh, he overturned lots of uh, mead benches. It means that he conquered lots of other tribes. He was a uh, he was a a fearsome earl. Um, not literally earl, as in like the 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 member of the gentry, but that word earl comes from aorla, which just means it means a a a person of upstanding a person of high social status. And in ancient Germanic society, you got that social status by being a great warrior. So since the time when he was first discovered uh, destitute, so shield chefing comes from humble beginnings. And then it says he thus frofreya, but he got compensation for that. And then we're about to find out how he grew under the clouds um he had a a, a mind of uh, a worthy mind and he uh, he grew in power until everybody around him even over the sea over the hronrada which means um over the whale road had to obey him and give him gold so basically shieldsheffing who is Hrothgar's ancestor he, he came from humble beginnings, he was poor and destitute, but he was a great warrior and he grew in power until he became such a good king that everybody and all the neighboring tribes and even over the sea had to obey him and send him tribute. And then the last line that I read, that was Godkönig, that was a good king. Because he did what a king should do, conquer everybody around him, take their money and then dispense it to his warriors. And that basically outlines the kind of world that you're in, a world where people's people's worth is directly related to their battle prowess. So in some ways it's egalitarian, because Schildschiffing doesn't come from a noble family. He proved his nobleness by being a great warrior. And remember that a traditional Germanic king leads the battle leads the army on the battlefield it's not somebody who stands beside or stands away from the battle and directs it from afar he's on the front line and this uh this leads into my next uh my next influence which is the 1981 film Dragon Slayer so how is Beowulf related to Dragon Slayer <sighs> So, Dragon Slayer, a 1981 uh, fantasy film co-produced by Disney and Paramount Pictures, starring a young uh, Peter McNichol, who would later be famous for his roles in Ally McBeal, and of course, camp counselor Gary Granger from uh, Adam's Family Values, although... um, I believe yeah, Dragon Slayer is far and away my favorite film that he's been in. Um this uh this film was released before Disney created Touchstone Pictures to uh to produce um less family oriented uh films. So um it was apparently controversial because it contains violence, it has some very good special effects for the dragon, especially for the time. Um brief nudity. So, you know, if you, if you thought, oh, it's a Disney film about dragons, I'll take my kids to it. You were probably in for a shock. I watched this film a lot when I was younger. Um, For, for kind of like the, I don't know, half of the eighties, my brother and I were in a single parent household and we did not have things like cable and my grandma did. Uh, my grandma, who uh, unfortunately passed away earlier this year, um, she had cable, and she basically every time a film came on HBO or Cinemax or anything like that, she would tape it, and then she would give those tapes to us. Um, so we always had lots of uh, lots of films to watch, and Dragon Slayer was one of those films, and I watched it. Loads and loads and loads of times, and then uh, in my teens, I kind of rediscovered it. Actually, not my teens. It's actually um, after I was already uh, at university. um, I kind of I was going through our basement and I dug up all these VHS tapes that uh, my grandma had made for us when we were kids, and it's like, oh, Dragon Slayer. By this time I'd already started learning a lot about, you know, the a lot about Anglo Saxon society that I was uh, just talking about earlier. And I realized some some of the subtexts of this film, Dragonslayer, for the first time. For one thing, it has lateral succession. Uh Germanic society had lateral succession rather than primogeniture. Primogenitor is um when the king dies and the king's oldest child, usually oldest male child, although that law has just been changed here in the UK, but oldest child inherits the throne. It's what we think of now as the typical way a monarchy works. That's not how monarchy worked in uh, ancient Germanic societies. If the king died, the throne passed to the next oldest male usually a brother, perhaps a cousin, conceivably an uncle. It does, you know, another adult male related to the king, probably not the king's son because there was almost certainly somebody older than the king's son who would, who would inherit the throne then. And the reason for that is because, like I said, the king's first duty is to lead warriors on the battlefield and that cannot be done by a child. So in Dragon Slayer, a group of uh of people from a country called Urland arrive at a wizard's castle because they're being plagued by a dragon, and they have to uh to, to tame this dragon, they have to offer a sacrifice of virgin women or virgin girls periodically. And the people are tired of this, so they want somebody to slay this dragon. So they go off in search of this wizard, Ulrich, who is apparently the last wizard. Um, that, that's made pretty clear. Um, they go through a list of other wizards. Ul- Ulrich doesn't want to go on this journey to kill this dragon. Mm-hmm. And he names a bunch of other potential wizards, and they're all dead. And and uh, the, the leader of this company, uh, a young boy or young man, um, called Valerian. It's like, you're the only one that's left. So when we finally get to Urland, we find that the current king, Cassiodorus, is the brother of the previous king, and that 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 king had attempted to slay the dragon and was never seen again. So the throne was inherited not by that king's child, but by his brother. There's a lot of other I mean names like Ulrich are very Germanic and stuff. Even Urland, right? So Ur is a Germanic um particle. When you attach it to a a word, you mean the oldest or original version of that. So Urland would be like the original land or something. Um there were some other things um that were very that were very in keeping with Germanic society that, that, that struck me once I was aware of them. Um, and that made me pay attention to more subtext. So another thing that, uh, was interesting was that in the background, it's not a major part of the film, but it's kind of like a subplot is while, while, uh, Peter McNichol as the wizard's apprentice is trying to find a way to defeat this dragon. There's, a Christian missionary who is slowly converting the people from paganism to Christianity. And in the very end, they actually declare that the dragon was actually the devil or something like that. Um, it's it's not a huge part of the film, but it is something that keeps going on in the background. And in fact, one of the original party who sought the wizard becomes one of the first converts. And when the, when the original missionary dies and gets incinerated by a dragon fire um, that convert takes over as the village priest like the village Christian priest and the the Vikings were kind of like the last of the Germanic people to be converted to Christianity they kind of held out the longest on the other hand most of what we know about their pre-Christian culture comes from uh, Snorri's Edda's and uh, you know he was a Christian so it's still done through the lens of a later Christianized version, you know, kind of looking back but the um the the rocky road to Christianizing the northern pagan Germans um and Scandinavians is a big part of when you study you know um early medieval germanic cultures and i thought here's a here's a way that this is kind of happening, like you can kind of get a glimpse of it, you know. Um, cause the thing about pagans, pa- paganism is not an organized religion, you know, back in the days when they had polytheism, you didn't go to church every Sunday to worship Odin, or I guess Wednesday would probably be a more appropriate holy day for Odin. It wasn't like that, you know, and, the, and oh, you'll go to Nevelheim if you don't worship Odin every week. You know, that's not how it worked. Um, And that and that meant that people were not really initially very bothered when somebody came in with a new God and said, you should worship this God Um, as probably only when they started to say, well, now you can't ever believe in the other gods because this God is the one God that you're only this is the only one you're allowed to worship now, you know, but by then it was like the ball was already rolling and you can kind of see that happening in this film. And finally, the last detail from this film that really influences how I approach my homebrew fantasy world is um, so Valerian turns out to be a young woman in disguise. And the reason she's disguised as a man is because her father didn't want her name on the lottery to be sacrificed to the dragon. And that's also why she led the group of people to to find a wizard to slay the dragon is because she's tired of pretending to be a boy. Also, there's only probably only a matter of time before she gets discovered, and she doesn't want to be sacrificed to a dragon. So her father is the village blacksmith, and uh, the wizard apprentice Galen and uh, Valerian, who becomes his love interest, and her father start working on a weapon that, that Galen can use to slay the dragon. And while they're working on it, the blacksmith says all this magic is dying and that makes me happy because that means the dragon will be dying too and you know that takes you back to the first scene of the film where it's clear that Ulrich is the last wizard and Ulrich dies in the second scene Galen is as the wizard's apprentice is perhaps now the last wizard but he's actually not a very good wizard and the and apparently the the dragon itself uh Vermithrax Pejorative is very old and possibly dying as well turns out the dragon has baby dragons so you know there there's a reason that you need to actually fight this dragon but that idea that you know Galen wants to be a wizard more than anything else in the world that's like all he's ever wanted to be that's what he's been spending his whole life training to do and if magic disappears, that's going to be bad for him. But if with it go mythical monsters like this dragon that will be good for Urland, and I love that idea that you would have to make a choice that you couldn't cherry pick and have good magic and good magical creatures and get rid of the bad ones, get rid of the monsters and the evil magic, that you're either going to have a safe non-magical world, which a lot of amazing things will have to disappear with it or keep those amazing magical things, but keep the danger as well. So that becomes the central conflict in my homebrew world. And it's, it's a very top level conflict. It's not something that any player characters have had to interact with specifically yet. But if anybody ever did get to a very high level and wanted to participate in some kind of cosmic struggle, that would be it. It would be whether or not magic is allowed to uh, remain and with it all the dangerous, frightening monsters and necromancers and evil gods and things like that. Or whether you get rid of magic and turn the world into a carbon copy of the actual medieval world where you know the only dangers are what we would think of as very mundane dangers and where ultimately civilization will triumph and tame all the wilderness and uh, I I thought it would be in, it would be interesting at some point to have to put that choice to PCs especially cuz almost every party includes a spellcaster you know, how many parties include an elf? Elves would be one of these things that would have to disappear. All the, all the non-human races would have to go by the wayside if the, the non-magic side ever won this conflict. Um, on the other hand, if you, if you don't, if you don't eventually bring about an end to magic, then civilization, as we know, will never advance beyond its present state. It will be kind of permanent foe medieval. So that's a that's a, a background or, or top level central conflict. Uh I think Matt Koval said every every setting has to have a central conflict that kind of defines every other struggle. And that's the the struggle in mine, and I stole that basically from, from Dragonslayer, from that one line in Dragonslayer that influenced me so much that you can't have the one without the other. If you don't want there to be a possibility that dragons can attack your village or that monsters can come in and raid your village, then you can't also, you have to get rid of magic as well. And you have to kind of have the good with the bad, or to, you have to sacrifice um, some of the good to get rid of the bad. In a similar way, you know, the way that Galadriel talks about the power of the elves and especially what, what, the bearers of the elven rings have been able to accomplish with their rings that their power that power will be broken and the elves will diminish if the one ring is destroyed that's a similar choice what ultimately will happen at the end of lord of the rings is that the magical world of tolkien will gradually morph into our real world that's kind of the implication and then, you know, that's why we don't have things like elves and dwarves and hobbits and stuff anymore. Is uh but it was it was a it was worth sacrificing those things in order to not be to not have Sauron and orcs and stuff in the world. And um I guess the other thing is that as I mentioned, the you know, gradual Christianization of Urland. So I have I have a monotheistic religion in my world, which is is an organized religion, and where people have that religion, they don't allow any other faiths, and and you do have to go into a church every week and things. Um, and then the other option that you can take as a player character is to not have that religion and to basically, you know, be polytheistic. And basically, I will allow any um any deity that has ever been worshipped either in the real world or in a fictional world, because it kind of doesn't matter. They all they all can coexist because that's it. Polytheistic religions aren't jealous of each other in the same in the way that monotheistic religions are. You know, monotheistic religions are the ones that tend to be like, this is the only right one. Everyone else is wrong. Um, If you think about like in Conan the Barbarian, when Conan is talking about Krom and uh, Subatai is talking about his God. I forget what his name was. You know, they're not angry at each other. Nor do they say that your God doesn't exist. I think Subatai said, my God's better because my God's like the God of the air or something, or the God of the sky or something like that. But it's not like a. It's, they don't get into a fight over it, you know, because it doesn't matter. And you could probably switch, and you know, or have more than one at the same time. You know, it's 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 pretty lax, and that's how the the polytheistic faiths work. It's not even faith per se. It's just sort of like, well, you think these entities are real, and of course, because it's a game, they are real. Um, the other thing is that most polytheistic deities aren't terribly interested in mortals. Um, I think that's based on something from one of the one of the Conan stories where, where Conan talks about Krom and he says, Little cares he for the, you know, the, the fates of men. And I like that idea of the fact that, you know, you have this God and he's technically your God, but you don't you don't have any illusions that he cares about what happens to you um and and that if you called upon him for aid you would be wasting your breath you know i like that idea that you know yeah the gods are real and they're really powerful and that being the case why would they care what happens to you you know and you'd have to do something pretty extraordinary to get their attention um yeah but you know if you come to my game and roll up a character you can bring any deity you want with you um it doesn't matter i'll I'll take anything Um, or you can take that monotheistic religion, but then you're going to be kind of more, you're going to be strict. And that's, those are the people who are going to be like, well, your God's evil or doesn't even exist, you know? Uh, anyway, so that's me rambling on about, uh, dragon slayer before I sign off, um, I backed the fantasy trip on Kickstarter. I wasn't going to. When people first started talking about it, it it's like, well, what is this fantasy trip? And, you know, people like, oh, it's the precursor to GURPS. And I'm like, no thanks, you know? Um, And then uh, Jim Murphy, Game Methuselah, did a video on YouTube about whether you should back the fantasy trip. He is, he loves it. He, he played it when it was in print. Um, So he has actual stories about it. And, if I'd recommend you go and watch Jim Murphy's video about the fantasy trip and the story he tells about playing in a game that was G at a con that was GM'd by Dave and himself. It is one of the best stories of old school gaming I've ever heard in my life. You really need to go and find that on YouTube right now. You know, thank God Jim Murphy has a channel and is telling us stories like that because those are those were the days, man. Anyways, he said when he was giving his assessment of the fantasy trip. First of all, he likes it because armor reduces damage rather than makes you harder to hit. And that's one of his DM's pet peeves, or one of his gamer pet peeves, is that he thinks armor should work as damage reduction, not as, you know, improvement to armor class. Um, which he's technically right. Um, but he also talked about being a strategic combat player. And that initially put me off because combat is my least favorite part of D&D, especially in modern D&D, where combat is basically, let's all take turns rolling our D20s until one side runs out of hit points. And there are any number of blogs and YouTube channels and podcasts full of advice on how to spice up combat in a modern D&D rule set. And none of that would exist if combat weren't so effing boring, you know, as written. Um, so I was like, well, more combat, no thanks. But, you know, then, then uh, Tankar talked about it in his uh, Kickstarter Roundup. In fact, he's talked about it a few times. Um, so other people started pointing out other aspects of the game that, first of all, it's really quick. And really easy to get your head around the rules, which is apparently a sharp contrast to GURPS. Um, those are magic words for me—quick and easy. Because I don't want to be—I don't want to be the gamer who only plays D and D. And I'm not that gamer. Actually, I play lots of other systems. But on the other hand. I don't have all the time in the world to learn complex new systems. So a lot of times if I'm going to get into a new system, it needs to be something that I can get my head around quickly. And also something that I can explain quickly and easily to my kids. Cause let's face it, I'm running games for my kids most of the time. So quick and easy that had me. Um, another one of the quotes was that it's really, really easy to, to stat up a monster on the fly and know exactly how tough it is. That's that's great news, because I like i i don't have a lot of time to prep, but also even if I did, I like improving, I like kind of flying by the by the seat of my pants, but when I need to make up a random monster, I kind of need to know you know how how tough is this monster, not because I want to to balance the encounter in the modern sense, but you know you you need to know how tough your monsters are um so that attracts me um so eventually I was like, you know what? I backed it at the PDF level because um, it's it's pretty cheap. And I'll be able to give it a good... I'll, you know, I don't mind running games off PDFs. What I expect from it... Um, at best case scenario is there'll be something I can use to overlay onto existing games that I'm already running. Like, you know like maybe my white box game or something like that, or maybe some rules that I can pinch and, and use as house rules in a game I'm already running. Worst case scenario is it'll be another game we play another part of our gaming repertoire. And if it's that quick and easy, it shouldn't be that hard to, uh, it shouldn't be that hard for us to start playing it. Also it comes with this solo adventures. So I guess, you know, the absolute worst-case scenario was that I at least can run those solo adventures for myself, or are they, I don't know if is it solo and that you run them literally for yourself, or that you run them for only one person. If it if it's if it's the kind of thing that you run for just one player, so a player to DM, then I can always roll, run it just for my daughter. She's up for any game. So, anyways, yeah, I mean the the Kickstarter is closing pretty soon. So if you haven't backed it and you're at all curious about it, you probably want to get in there because I think the intention is they are going to release it again, but it'll be more expensive. Uh, for instance, like to get the full box set is $60. Um, but apparently once that, once, once the Kickstarter is over and they start making it, that box set will still be available, but it'll be more expensive. I just got the PDFs. How was it? 25 pounds or $25 or something like that. I don't know if they're going to do PDF release only after the Kickstarter is finished. Um, but I would imagine that they probably raise the price on everything across the board. So yeah. Um, I, uh, I have backed it. So when it, when it drops, when the PDFs drop, I will be seeing about adding that to my gaming repertoire. Um, Uh, I think for my next podcast, I meant to do it for this podcast, but I got distracted by this appendix and stuff that's been making the rounds. So the next podcast, I think I will do a comparison of Maze Rats and Hero Kids and talk about the pros and cons of each system, especially as a game that you might run for kids. Until then, play well and let the dice roll where they may.